The following resource is presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. We want to welcome our online listeners this morning. We are now starting to move from the principles that are primarily birthed inside the soul, mind, will, and emotions of man. And those are the seven areas of life we've covered up to this point. And now today we start bringing them into the most practical areas of life. First one being our social area. Now this is going to challenge uh, a few of you because there is a emergent belief that is out there for Christians to become friends with unsaved people. And that whole belief of becoming friends with unbelievers is what destroys a church. And I'm going to show this to you this morning. When you think of social area of life, what are some of the things that come to your mind? Where do you think that word comes from? Well, that's, that's kind of what comes to mind nowadays for people. It's from society. So the term society, just take a couple guesses what that might mean. When you think of the word community, the Latin word within there is really easy. So what do you have? And commune means, where does culture come from? Society. Social is the interaction within a society to hope, to breed, commune, oneness, unity within that community. Community is birthed through a group of people that supposedly are going to be thinking, functioning as one. Nowadays, that is considered... um, pretty bad the goal is not unity for any community the goal is diversity so the whole principle of unity and communion is gone that is an old 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 fashioned principle diversity I was even listening to the Olympics last night we were you know sitting there and the the chairman of the Olympic Committee was being interviewed or whatever, and I don't know how many times in that miniature interview he was saying diversity, 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 and, and, and wholeness, and, and religious values. And, and I was sitting there listening to this guy, and I'm like, man, he is well-trained by some antichrist somewhere. What does diversity mean? Yeah, the acceptance of division. So you process that a little bit as we're going through this. The acceptance of division. And then we can start talking about the social area of life. Have you ever wondered what the purpose is for relationships outside of Christ? Well, I certainly have. Let's review the facts. All unsaved people are of the world and are hostile toward God due to this reality. Of course, that comes out of James chapter 4 verse 5 and it says he who is friends with the world they make themselves enemy of God 
Now this is this is the rubber hitting the road here is that when you're when you're looking out into society and you're seeing individuals who are nice, they're nice people. It's very easy to befriend these nice people. And the facts are they are viewed by the living God as hostile toward him. But we are befriending. Hebrew for friendship is what again? An exchange of identity. So that is so incredibly dangerous. And that's why it's a hostile thought to God is that you want to exchange identity with someone who's going to hell and you won't even exchange your identity with me? You see what that does? If you don't, you will. The scripture... The scriptures go on to say that anyone who is friends with the world makes himself an enemy of God. So how is it that we are to befriend those of the world, exchange identities? Did you not know that our social life is a true confession of what we believe? You can tell each other, tell me or tell someone else, all you want what you believe. But who you are befriending is your true confession. You want to know why people get sucked away from the truth that sets them free? It's because of who they're associating with. That is a very, very difficult thing to embrace for most people because most people don't have true indwelt Christians as their friends. They've got mommies and daddies and brothers and sisters and cousins and and friends and neighbors and whatever that are hostile toward God. And they have become friends with them. them, Therefore, when it comes to Christ approaching them, saying, choose this day whom you will serve. They're like, well, it's not going to be you. And they choose their family. They choose their friends. That was one of the things that DK was bringing out in that passage. Some guys say, well, I'll follow you, but let me take care of some family stuff first. Eh, wrong answer. Next. There's even a passage that Jesus said, for anyone who considers his father, mother, brother, sister more important, what's the rest of it? You're not worthy of me. You see, when push comes to shove, for Christ and Him crucified, for the sake of God the Father, there's only one thing that matters. Will you or will you not lay down your entire life for the sake of the gospel? No, I am not willing to do that. Okay, next. You say, God's not that cold. Watch this. The implication here is that as non-Christians, our social relationships with others are according to the flesh. Meaning there is no eternal value. Whatever you're investing in that social relationship, be them family members or not, there's no value. It's valueless. It's like giving all of that effort to someone who is going to hell and you are suffering in this relationship because they're not responding back or they're rejecting you or they're whatever you're like expecting something from them and the truth being said they have nothing to offer you but selfishness they have nothing to offer you but flesh there's no eternal value so here's the deal 
we are being mandated by the living God through Jesus Christ to have relationship with the body of Christ first. Then we're to take that investment and to have an impact on fleshly relationships. That's not how it works. It's opposite. You tug at someone's secular relationships and you'll probably hear about it. So for God to tell you very overtly, hey, anyone who's friends with the world is hostile toward me. I am not. Yes, you are. So they're actually saying to God, you're a liar. Because I can have an emergent relationship with these unsaved people while I can have a dynamic relationship with you. No, you can't. In other words, they are built by us out of selfish motives. And this is why it sets us up to make ourselves an enemy of God. It further indicates that even our initial coming to know Christ was selfishly motivated. It is not news to most believers that salvation is all about us. And once we become indwelt by Christ, the working out of our salvation is to make it all about him. Is that true to you? I mean, to get saved, it's all about you, right? You want to be free. You want Christ. You want this Christian life. You want all the benefits of being free in Christ. Yeah, it is all about you. Well, the working out of our salvation is is that great exchange in our mind, will, and emotions to make it not about us, but completely about Him. So you have the exchange spiritually, you have to have an exchange psychologically, and you have to have an exchange physically. When indwelt Christians die, they're given what? A new body. They exchange physically. Spiritually, exchange is salvation. Psychological exchange is appropriation of code, death, burial, and resurrection. Physical exchange is the proof. That's all you got to remember. You want If you're wondering what you're going through, that's all you have to remember. Those are the only three exchanges that God says you must go through. Salvation brings a new order to our social lives that few tend to adhere to. Once indwelt, this new order demands a new motivation and a new basis for all relationships. Proof of salvation is in your social life. You want to continue to hang out with the people after your conversion and salvation? Your old identity that matched theirs initially is not going away. It'll suck you right back in to an unsaved lifestyle. Okay, here's the facts. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you are a brand new creation. And old things, relationships included, have passed away as if they died. Now I'm going to bring out the most practical, practical, painful relationship I can think of. And that is being married to an unsaved spouse. You get saved, they don't. <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, they're used to, you know, eating and drinking at bars. They're used to whatever. What are you going to do? Or your children. You know, you used to your, your 
children and the lifestyle you've given to them and they're enjoying it back and now that one, either they're saved and you're not or you're saved and they're not. What are you going to do? They're your kids. Uncle's popcorn stand and this uh, young man walked up to the window and figured he wants some popcorn. I open up the window and this popcorn stand was big enough to you know, have a little chair sitting over here, and then, you know, it was a popcorn stand. And I opened up the window, and I expected him to order some popcorn, and he said, did you know that Jesus Christ loves you? And I won't tell you what I said to him, but it wasn't very nice. I was a very nasty teenager, and I took on my father's hatred of the church. My grandfather was uh, a pastor and a church reformer and literally my father was named after Charles Finney and then his hatred I adopted and I hated the church I let this kid know this the next day at 305 there was a knock at the window I opened up the window it was this kid again and he kind of looked familiar and he said did you know that Jesus Christ loves you well I was very unkind to him shut the door in his face, and off he went. That night I go back to my aunt and uncle's place. This is my father's sister, so she grew up in a pastor's home, like my father did. And I asked at the dinner table, who in the world is this Jesus Christ? And I don't even remember what she said to me. So I go downstairs, which is where I was staying in their basement. There was a double bed down there, and I'm trying to get to sleep. And I saw these demonic images coming just like you would see in a movie. That was back before they had the technology to do this in movies. I saw these horrible, horrible faces coming at me, laying there in the dark. And I am petrified. And I am crying out to whoever this Jesus is and the only words it was it was like I was being paralyzed like I was being choked off and the only word that I could get out of my mouth was guess what Jesus, Jesus. that was the only word I could get out and I kept saying it over and over Jesus Jesus I didn't know who it was I just this kid saying that Jesus loves me and all of a sudden God allows this plague of demonic attack and the only thing I can get out of my mouth is Jesus. I was being choked by oppression. This is how my salvation started. And boy, if I look back now over those uh, many years, I go, really? <laughs> Hasn't changed that much. I feel darkness quickly. I sense lies quickly. You see what I mean? The way you were birthed is the way you shall live in war. Didn't know that back then. So now, I, I'm saying this word, and I have no clue how long I was doing it. It was a long time, and I got free. So I get up the next morning, and, you know, it's breakfast time with Annie Sis, and I told Annie Sis what happened, and I still have no recall of what she said. I go to the popcorn stand to work, and I'm doing my job all day long. Guess what happens at 3.05? And I opened up that window. I said, don't move. 
shut the window, went over to the door, drug him in and sat him down in that one tiny little single chair in that popcorn stand. And I said, you tell me who this Jesus Christ is. And he looks at me and goes, I'm just here to tell you that he loves you. Bye-bye. And he gets up and he leaves. So, I am pacing in this popcorn stand. And I'm like being overwhelmed by this feeling again, like I had in the basement. And I'm just starting to freak out. And I look across the street. I've been working in this popcorn stand all summer long. And I look across the street and I see a Christian bookstore sign. Why didn't I see this before? I'm sure the store was there. I locked up the popcorn stand. I walked across the street. I went down into that basement bookstore. I stood in the the door of that bookstore. I says, is there anyone here who can tell me who this Jesus Christ is? The lady goes, stay right there, stay right there. And she runs and gets the manager. And the manager goes and gets this book by Leroy Imes. And it was a book on teaching you how to pray. And who is he? Never told me. So he gives me the book as a gift. And I leave. That weekend I went home to be with my mother. My father was on the road, but be with my mother. And I walk in the door and I first thing out of my mouth is I said, Mom, who is this Jesus Christ? She said, oh, blankety blank, I don't know. Go talk to the preacher down you know, at the church. So I got in my hot rod and I drove down to the, there's only two churches in this little community, and I pulled up in front of the pastor's house, went up and knocked on his door, and I said, can you tell me who this Jesus Christ is? That poor guy about flipped out. He said, stay right here. So he went, he got his coat, and he got his Bible, and we walked over to the church. We went into the church, sat down, and he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I got saved. Now, that story of me doing the pursuing to find Christ is different than a lot of people. In fact, the pastor has told me since that he has used that story many times in his preaching of the young man who sought out and refused to accept anything other than the truth of how and who this Jesus Christ is. Think about the day of your salvation. Think about the days before your salvation and you shall discover your spiritual gifts. I'll leave it at that. Just days before your salvation, the Holy Spirit is moving, activating the gift you were literally physically born with that needed to be united with the power of the Holy Spirit. That same style is how I disciple. That same style is how I preach. That same style is how I pursue Jesus. You need to give me some answers here. And even though it's demanding and got Godship in it, he understands. And he works with it. To become new and hold to the relationships of the world, the unsaved, it is what Satan uses to drag us back into the world. 
He, of course, knows that this will cause us to develop hostile relationship with God. The friction we experience, the yeah, the friction we experience in unsafe social relationships result from either deliberate or thoughtless self-seeking acceptance. This push for acceptance robs God of His deserved right to be the one who accepts us through His indwelling Son, and this certainly is why God requires us not to associate with so-called brothers who continue in their friendships in the world. So here's 1 Corinthians 5.11. This is probably a verse that has not been real popular in the church. And that is, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous, jealousy, idolater, have other gods before God, a reviler, someone who's constantly causing problems, a drunkard, someone who's constantly going back to the drink, or a swindler, someone who's constantly swinging a brand new deal. Not even eat with such a one. Now, you tell me where you're at right now, what thoughts, feelings, whatever, you're having about this mandate. This is huge. This is where the emergent church says, oh no, I will not do this. Not realizing it's the worm on the hook that the enemy throws out there and into all Christians lock onto and he pulls them away from the body of Christ. They literally use all these things from jealousy, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, swindling to harm the church. That's all Satan cares about. He'd care less if you're drunk. He didn't care. He didn't care less if you're a deal swinger. He didn't care. He just wants you locking onto the worm so he can pull you back into friendship with the world. And your friendships with the world become more valuable than your friendship with the body of Christ. Who is Christ in them? So it's really Christ you're having friendship with in the indwelled believer. So what are you thinking when you see this or read this? Do people who are of this and they're sitting here, well, how are they going to feel when they hear this? Since 92% of the people attending churches are unsaved, how are they going to feel about this? Oh, so now the Christians don't want to associate with me? They can't even have a meal with me? Oh, those judgmental Christians. The only reason that Jane and I suffered with a separation in our engagement is because I started a ministry in a bar. And she said, if this is what our life is going to be together, I am not going to marry you. And I said, we're just sharing Christ in the local bar. You know, we'd sip on our one drink and, you know, we, we, that was our ministry. My buddy and I had this ministry in a bar. And we were touching lives. They were drunk, but I mean, we were touching lives. The stupidity of the youth in Christ is what is destroying our church. A lot of the emergent churches today are grown-up youth leaders. They still have to have all the high energy and the, the, the concert music and the light shows. and the, They're just grown-up little boys. 
And therefore the sound doctrines, and this is just about as meaty as you're going to get, becomes judgment. The reason why unsaved people want to get saved is they're tired of the lifestyle in which they're living and they want to be of your lifestyle. This is not a statement of rejection. This is a statement of, I'm sorry, Joe, I just can't go there with you. Remember when Jesus said, for all those who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest? He doesn't chase you. He doesn't chase sinners. I don't know where we got that false doctrine. He waits until they come. He makes himself available, but he just waits sometimes until their deathbeds. Just waits. Come. No, you you come to me on my terms. He won't do it. The facts of 1 Corinthians 5.11 are this. Association in this passage is the same root word as friendship. Anyone who becomes friends with any person takes ownership of the other individual's identity. In the Hebrew, friendship is an active exchange of identity. Behavior comes from identity. And when we associate or socialize with someone of the world... We are adopting their behavior as well. This is how the emergent church is born. You cannot adopt their identity without adopting their behavior. And therefore, I'm not going to judge you because of your behavior. You go emergent. The Christian needs to learn a way to reject the sin and accept the person. This is very difficult impossible without Christ. We are called by the Lord to only associate with those in Christ who follow the letter of God's word. In fact, we are asked to make special note of those who do not obey these instructions of the word and to keep them at arm's length in order that the worldly person will not be put to shame. We are not to point our finger in judgment. We are not to point our finger in rejection. We are to associate in such a way to present the gospel while we keep them at arm's length. Because if you don't, what's going to happen is the adoption in friendship, is adoption of behavior, and you can never speak in or against that person's behavior again. You can't. Or you'll lose them as a friend. Friendship becomes more important than the gospel. That's why Jesus says, you're not even worthy of me. Once that switch happens, you're not even worthy. You consider family more important. You consider friendship more important. So what's the point? Why should we have this discussion? 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, If anyone does not obey our instruction of this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So what is this passage referencing? You see, if you just go back to our illustration where you've got a, a uh, young pastor who is pastoring a youth group. Rule number one, number 101 of the family integrated church is what? Well, we don't want to separate. 
the kids, from the adults. Family integration is, there's no such thing as a youth department. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the basics of family integration, grab one of the little Heartland booklets today, take it with you, and study it, because that's foundational for us. You don't separate the kids from the adults. Your kids need to hear these heavy things so you can go home and share with your children what the pastor was talking about. And if you don't know what the pastor was talking about, you're supposed to make that phone call to ask a few questions. No, but normally what happens is gossiping and separation and diversity. And people leave. The system of family integration is there's no such thing as a youth group. So now you have pastors who are pastors of youth groups. And when the surveys have been done on the emergent churches, almost 100% of the pastors in the emergent movement were youth pastors. Do you not see a problem here? Do you not see the problem They were trying to be friends with all these kids. And these kids are coming in with drugs, sex, rock and roll, all this idolatry and perversion. And they're coming in to this high energy light show, kind of, you know, being youthful. And then you take that guy and you turn him into a senior pastor. And he's jumping from that to overseeing the body of Christ. Well, I certainly understand why Paul and Timothy had the relationship that they did. He was grooming him one-on-one, privately. Here's what the true doctrines are. Here's what you can expect happen in ministry. This whole idea of jumping from an immature mind to supposedly managing the most intense part of ministry as an adult... To, to function under the intensity of that level of warfare, it takes the maturity and mind of Christ to survive it. Now we're going to talk about, and those of you who are listening online, I'm begging you before the Lord Jesus Christ to listen very, very carefully to this next paragraph. It is the number one reason why we cannot disciple others. There is no other reason I have found in 40 years of discipleship and preaching and teaching and writing, I have found no other thing that impacts the training of the next generation like what I am about to share with you. And here we go. And I reject the lies that Satan is throwing at these listeners right now. Shame is necessary for unsaved people. Or people who think they are saved. It brings them to repentance. Shame brings people to repentance. Don't lighten the blow of salvation. Conviction is what God uses once the individual inhabits the indwelling life of Christ. Shame is what he uses to break the person. Conviction is what takes over after that. Shame is very shameful. It plagues you with guilt. Conviction 
is gentle reminders. Conviction is what God uses once the individual inhabits the indwelling life of Christ. Shame is a part of the stepping stones to lead others to Christ. For it is a part of their fallen nature. The church today is so focused, stay with me church leaders, the church today is so focused on their own reputations. Thus not feel shame that oftentimes a church assists in helping the unsaved person in this blow that the Holy Spirit is ordered by God to bring on this person. This blow, this snapping of the legs so they can't even walk anymore so they become dependent on the life of Christ. You see, Ken had to fall off that mountain because there was no other way that boy was going to listen to anyone. Do you understand that? If you do not listen by the hearing of your ears to your leaders, God goes to the physical, the third element of brokenness. Well, that doesn't fit in here. Why does a parent spank a child? They first say to the child, please do not do that. And the child just kind of does one of these and does it anyway parent comes along and says come here let's have a little talk and they have a little intense talk this is normal responsible parenting and the child may go whatever and then the parent takes the child to the bathroom and gets the family paddle out and paddles the child do you understand what's happened here the first appeal was spiritual the second appeal was psychological The third appeal was, I'm going to snap your little leg. Shepherd to the sheep. Snapping of the leg. Now that doesn't work in a church today. Parents get sued. Do you understand what the enemy is doing? He is nullifying the physical consequences of rebellion. So he can nullify the psychological consequences of worldly relationships. So that the person never understands who they are in Christ. This is common sense stuff for believers. Always remember shame is the primary prerequisite for salvation and the believer's part in this is not to associate, have friendship with these individuals in order to maturate this stepping stone of shame. This does not mean that the believer is not to reach out to unsaved. The scripture clearly warns us of the danger of having a friendship association with such immoral people. We are called to have the same type of social life with Christ himself and what he had with the unsaved world. You didn't see him rejecting them. You saw him step out for them and offer a hand of salvation. There's no will you be my friend business. Step out Here's my hand. You're drowning. It's your choice. Reach out because I've already chosen you. And he will be such a gentleman that if you do not, because of your pride, reach out and grab that hand, he'll let you suffocate. He'll snap every twig in your body if he has to. He does it every day. And you say, what a cruel God. He's not cruel. You won't listen. 
If the only thing that you have left in your life as a teacher is your human body, that's what he'll teach you in. But if you are psychologically in tune and wanting to learn about the living life of Christ, he'll use that. But if you are of the rare few that when you hear spiritual words taught, you immediately embrace them and get washed with them, you are a rare breed. But you're the one that has to choose which category you fall into. We are called to have the same kind of social life relationships that Jesus Christ has. This should be our goal in all social relationships outside of Christ. How did he do it? Why did he do it? And will I be a part of that? Reputation is the greatest tool of destruction for Satan. Because it promotes gossip. It's always about secrets. Who are you trying to protect here? You destroy your leaders while you get your reputation protected? You will have the hand of God against you. And that's why we are warned by God in the scriptures not to have associations with people who destroy the church leaders. On the other hand, as the indwelled disciples of Christ, we should work to associate with disciples. But since Christians tend to wound their own by not associating with their own believers, the church, today is oftentimes friendship with so-called believers. This church is becoming more and more emergent or lukewarm. Here's what it tells us in Acts. Betraying our own out of ignorance. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might uh, put him to death, and this and his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him into a large basket in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple or truly born again. Now, I can understand that. Can you not? Paul was a murderer of Christians. He had a horrible reputation. Paul has a new reputation. A reputation that even demons know about. Remember the guy was trying to cast out a demon? And the demon said to the guy, For I know Jesus Christ and I know Paul, but who are you? Stay with me on this. His reputation had moved from that of man to that of the spiritual world. And even demons knew who he was. And now when it came to the disciples... They too were looking at this guy and they had a choice on their hands. Do we believe in the reputation we have heard or do we believe in the reputation of what God says is true about Paul? So we'll look into that. This is the reason for the sickness of the bride of Christ today. For they shun the real indwell believers and their leaders while offering friendship to those who are so-called believers resulting in damaging the real bride of Christ and hindering Christ in the authentic believer 
in accomplishing his mission. Proverbs warns us of the danger of associating with people who demand external change while experiencing, while not experiencing true transformation. It's a behavior mod approach to Christianity. It's always about changing, 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 and not the life of Christ in you. It says in Proverbs, My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that comes with both of them. When people are pushing for change, and their focus is change, calamity comes upon their life instantly. Hours. It will begin to manifest in their lives. And then it goes on. It says, when he said, my son, fear the Lord and the king. Those who fear the Lord are, are generally respectful and hold to a proper fear of authority. The type of fear stated here is not the kind of fear that divides, but rather the kind that is full of love, reverence of God, and his established authorities, faith in those who govern for him, submission to those who watch over them, and who lead others to worship him inwardly and outward. On the other hand, people of change tend to change at the drop of a new doctrine or religious belief, and we are warned not to associate with his kinds in, in regard to social relationships. People are given to change, love new political ideas, new laws, forms of government, new ministries, kinds of leaders, but continually embracing plots, conspiracies, rebellions, who instead of fearing God and the king, change the laws and commands of God. This is a profound statement, guys. They change the laws and commands of God and the king in order to match their emergent beliefs. And therefore we are commanded to, to shun such people. This is that youth leader guy that has been profoundly impacted by emergence. And he just wants all those people in that youth group to feel loved and accepted and forgiven. And the truth of the matter is they have no power to give them any of those three. Only Christ does. And they need to be led to the cross by the letter of the law. You cannot live this life in and of yourself. But I feel shamed and I feel judged by you. I'm not the judge. The letter of the law shall be used to lead you to this shame. The shame that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden after they ate the fruit is the same shame you should have experienced 10 minutes before you got saved. And if you didn't, because your pastor, your leader, was emergent, then you might want to get on your knees again. Shame is a powerful tool to lead us to repentance if the leader does it in kindness. These so-called believers are given to change in Christian beliefs, making changes to Christianity that better serve a culture, modernizing the doctrines of God and his required practices. The buzz statement of the emergent church is, we need a new kind of Christianity. One that does not judge. One that does not condemn. And one does not make people feel guilty. They just took out the gospel. 
They are nonetheless turned with every kind of wind of doctrine, finding faith in teachers instead of the teacher, Christ Jesus. They are fickle, inconsistent, carried about like leaves in the air, being blown by the wind of the day. The result being that they infect the true body of Christ with diverse and strange doctrines, such as a degree with the perfections of God, the doctrines of Christ and his apostles, the scriptures of truth, the authenticity of true faith, and such an association will divert real believers away from the institutions or ministries and the appointments of Christ himself. Can you imagine this? Sitting in a congregation that does not believe that the word of God is the absolute word of God. Now I, wanna, I want you guys to think about something. Because I know I've got some listeners right now that's listening very carefully to this because their denomination has tossed out the word of God being the authentic words of God. And it is literal. Can you Imagine a true indwelt believer setting in that fellowship under the leadership of the Word of God is not authentic, is not the absolute Word of God. But we will accept the book as principles and concepts of truth. You answer the question for me can an indwelt believer sit there in that fellowship? Why not? Well, we oftentimes associate the word shun with, with uh, the Amish people. That's not a good association. That's not what shun is. It's do not become friends. You can be by them, around them, hug them, give them a gift, coffee, hear some meal. Shunning is I cannot be one with you. Commune, communati. I cannot be one with you. That is all shunning is. You cannot exchange the identity. Okay, now let's let's, uh, let's get down to the bare bones here before we close this sermon off because we've got to make this connection. A true indwelt believer is sitting in a congregation that does not believe that the Word of God, this Bible, is the authentic, inspired words of and from God. God. For some reason, the 150 people in that church are supporting this pastor, make such ridiculous claims, subject to man's opinion, and you're sitting in there, your antennas are up, tell me again, why is it you cannot sit there week after week? You're with your enemies. <laughs> they are not my enemies. They're my friends. If you ever go back to a church, if you ever attend a church, if you ever are a part of any kind of ministry for the sake of friendship, you're, you don't have any antennas. There's no way you can sit there and have the life of Christ in you breathing the word and you're listening to a preacher who doesn't even believe in the word being authentic from God, what's the point? What's the point of sitting in that church? I was under intense conviction this week to make sure I put the warning out there to our listeners 
that if you are sitting in these congregations or desire to go back to them, you must question your salvation. And I'm going to say it one more time. If you are a leader who is preaching in the non-absolutes of the Word of God, if you are a participant sitting in a body where you got a preacher who doesn't believe in the absolutes of the Word of God, that the Word of God is His authentic words, inspired from His mind, out of His tongue, into Paul's mind, into his pen, and he wrote it out. If you do not believe that, you need to question your salvation. And if you are fighting me on this, it is a fruitless discussion to talk to you about it because you, I have no basis to have this discussion with you. You don't even believe in the authenticity of the Word of God. The reason why we have young, emergent pastors of youth rising up to stick their finger in the faces of mature leaders of God is because of this belief. If they don't believe in the absolutes of God's word, they will certainly not believe in the ultimate respect of an absolute leader. They won't. It's impossible. We have children ruling families because of this belief. They don't have respect for their leaders anymore. And that will only work in a cold, dark, spiritual country. It has to be darkened. It's the only way it will work, to have the children rule. So now you take the children who are part of the church. The only way that the people can rule these leaders is to have this church go cold and dark. You can see from this one passage that those who dishonor God and the king, his established authority, Romans 13, end up breeding in true believers, distrust and broken loyalty to God and his leaders, resulting in an emergent, wandering church. The worst type of a flesh walker we can uh, hang with are those who are slanderers of leaders and body members through gossip. Number two, he, he who goes about as a slander reveals secrets, and therefore do not associate with the gossip. Well... It's fun to associate with a gossip, isn't it? It is fun. This is why we do not entrust valuable teachings and information to disciples who end up gossiping about leaders to others. It's the most dangerous thing you could possibly do as a leader. Truth being said, most relationships we embrace do not advance the life of Christ from within, but rather take his place. Finally, once we discover the wanderer, The truth of thought and effort through Christ, we are able to contribute to the lives of true friends rather than drawing upon their lives or their friendship to actually benefit us. So it's no longer what I can get from you, it's more of what I can give to you. And that's our final conclusion. It's not what I can get, it's what I can give you. Now you'll have the balance, because you really care for them. Here's some questions to consider. What's the motive of each and every one of your friendships? Two, what relationships do you have that breed disappointment? Three, what conditional relationships are in your social life? Four, what relationships do you have that you draw? Assuming that's the, what I meant by that is the life that you'll be giving them instead of what you're getting from them. Five, what is the general tone of your relation, of your friendships? 
And then finally, number six, what are self-seeking attitudes? What are your self-seeking attitudes in regard to your friends or acquaintances of which you need to repent of? Doesn't it seem kind of silly to have to repent of having friendships with people? Maybe not. Here's our identity statement for today: true repentance. Simple fact: Jesus Christ loves me unconditionally, and that love controls me from being selfish in any kind of relationship. Since he died for me, he expects me to lay down my life for each and every friend he puts on my path. He requires of me to no longer live for myself, but for him in order to reveal to my friends that he too died on their behalf. He, or therefore, he requires of me to no longer live for myself, but for him, in order to reveal that my friend uh, to my friends that he too died on their behalf. Point basically being, what is it that it is that I am giving to this person versus what I am getting from them? And here's our principle: is that if my identity is Christ and this friend that I have had, their identity is their flesh. If my focus is what I can give to them, if they choose to want to be friends with me, they have to make the exchange to join me in where I'm living. It's not the other way around. So there's no rejection. It's acceptance. But you can't make the exchange with them. They have to make the exchange with you. And that will require repentance of them giving up their life as a non-believer to receive the life of Christ so you have the same identity in Jesus Christ. True friendship is giving away the life of Christ and that kind of friendship is eternal and life-giving and our social life must match these objectives or else I am acting as an unbeliever. Anything outside of this demands repentance. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.